0: chapter seven part two of twenty years of the republic eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five by harry thurston peck this librivox recording is in the public domain cleveland once more part two of mrs cleveland this island princess made an important convert to the cause she represented mrs cleveland welcomed her very warmly to the white house and gave her a most womanly sympathy keiulani was indeed a very charming girl and she made a favorable impression upon the president and also upon the secretary of state to whom she was presently introduced mr gresham during the years when he was a republican had been a rival of mr harrison and this rivalry had in time deepened into a personal dislike no wonder that the harrison policy regarding hawaii should be viewed by him with extreme disfavor altogether then between the president's natural caution which led him to move slowly in an affair begun with so much haste and mr gresham's eagerness to undo the work of one whom he disliked no surprise was felt when on march ninth a message of five lines was sent to the senate withdrawing for the purpose of re-examination the treaty framed by president harrison and the hawaiian commissioners a few days later mr cleveland dispatched to hawaii as a special commissioner mr james h blunt of georgia to investigate the circumstances under which the change of government in the islands had been effected mr blunt was an honest but somewhat cross-grained politician who had been chairman of the committee on foreign affairs in the house of representatives yet one more unfamiliar with foreign affairs could scarcely have been selected for this delicate mission he had never been out of the united states in his life and his knowledge of diplomatic usage was as limited as his mastery of social forms in keeping with the rather primitive notions of secretary gresham in matters of ceremonial mr blunt proceeded to hawaii not by a regular mail steamer nor in a man-of-war but on board a little revenue cutter the richard rush he reached honolulu on march twenty ninth president dole and the other members of the provisional government had heard that a commission consisting of representatives of the judiciary the army and the navy had been sent to them and suitable preparations were made to receive such a commission with due dignity an eye-witness has given a graphic account of what actually happened all the vessels in the harbor displayed the american flag and the american colors were wreathed about the pillars and columns of the city houses at the pier a great multitude had assembled strewing the passageway with roses as the rush hove in sight a japanese cruiser the naniwa fired a thunderous salute to which the little rush responded like the yap of a terrier echoing the deep baying of a staghound and then then came an anticlimax that very closely approached the ridiculous instead of the dignified affable and courteous body of officials that had been expected there stepped ashore a commonplace and rather sullen-looking man of sixty clad in ill-fitting clothes of blue homespun and a panama hat public expectation had been roused to the highest pitch and the revulsion of feeling was instantaneous and painful note seventeen page three thirty mr blunt delivered to president dole a letter from president cleveland beginning great and good friend i have made choice of james h blunt one of our distinguished citizens as my special commissioner to visit the hawaiian islands and make report to me concerning the status of affairs in that country his authority is paramount mr blunt brought with him other letters from the american president one of them addressed to minister Stevens practically suspended that gentleman from the exercise of his diplomatic functions and made him subordinate to mr blunt a second letter directed to rear-admiral scarrett in command of the pacific squadron to consult freely with mr blunt and obey any instructions you may receive from him regarding the course to be pursued in the islands by the force under your command armed with these remarkable credentials mr blunt began in his own way to investigate the events of the preceding february on the day after his arrival he ordered the american flag to be lowered from the government building in honolulu and directed the force of marines which had been stationed there to break camp and return to their ship the boston this was done and the provisional government at once raised its own flag and posted its own troops with a battery of rapid-fire guns to quell any attempt to restore the queen note eighteen page three thirty one when the news of these events reached the united states a great deal of very bitter feeling was excited the american people were not strongly in favor of annexing hawaii apart from a few speculators in sugar there was no great interest in the matter a desire for foreign territory had not yet stirred the popular imagination had mr cleveland simply put the treaty in the fire and kept his hands off hawaii altogether the whole affair would have been speedily forgotten but when the credentials which he had given to mr Blunt were fully known they were very generally disapproved alike by democrats and by republicans the president had apparently delegated the whole power of his great office to an individual commissioner a nondescript functionary unknown to the constitution who had by a stroke of the presidential pen been put over the head of a regularly appointed minister and invested with the absolute command of an important naval force there is indeed no doubt that Mr. Cleveland exceeded his constitutional rights and that Mr. Blunt's paramountcy was unlawful. Before long, a still more intense feeling was aroused by the report that the President intended to restore Queen Liliuokalani to her throne. The rumor proved to be true. Mr. Blunt's reports and a study of the earlier dispatches of Minister Stevens convinced Mr. Cleveland that the Hawaiian monarchy had been subverted by the active aid of Mr. Stevens and through the intimidation caused by the presence of an armed naval force of the United States. Note 19, page 332. Having assured himself of this, the President felt it his duty, as he expressed it, to undo the wrong and to restore the status existing at the time of our forcible intervention. Note 20 page three thirty two it was here that the president made a second blunder and as it proved a most humiliating one for him he forgot in the first place the wise tradition that in the foreign policy of the united states there should be no break and that in essentials a change of administration should cause no change in the attitude of the state department toward other countries note twenty one page three thirty two there was another and more practical consideration whether or not the provisional government of hawaii could have held its own against the queen's forces in the preceding january without the presence of american marines there was no doubt that it was now quite able to sustain itself it had an efficient force of some twelve hundred well-drilled troops nearly all americans and englishmen it was supplied with artillery and it enjoyed the support of the responsible residents of hawaii note twenty two page three thirty three hence to restore the queen would require something more than a curt request from president cleveland but with his innate obstinacy the president resolved to make the attempt and the unpopularity of such a course only strengthened his resolve recalling mr blunt whose churlish manners had made him thoroughly disliked mr cleveland appointed as minister to hawaii mr albert s willis of kentucky a gentleman of intelligence and judgment mr willis however was specifically instructed to bring about the restoration of the queen and a naval force was stationed at honolulu to give point to his instructions on his arrival the new minister sent to president dole a formal request that he relinquish to the queen her constitutional authority president dole replied by a courteous but firm refusal here was an impasse which could be broken through by nothing short of armed force Would the guns of American ships of war be turned upon men of American blood in order to re-enthrone a Polynesian queen who had broken her coronation oath and had sought to govern irresponsibly? Mr. Willis hesitated. Yet he might, under his instructions, have taken even this last step, had not the unexpected obstinacy of the queen herself deterred him. She was asked whether, if replaced upon the throne, she would agree not to punish those who had deposed her. Note 23, page 334 this question she met with an indignant negative not punish them most assuredly she would punish them the leaders mr dole mr thurston and their associates must be executed at once she would have their heads and their families must be banished here spoke not merely the queen who felt herself in all respects a sovereign and who had been deprived of power and publicly humiliated something of the implacable hatred of an insulted woman found voice in the sharp answer which she made to mr willis for the annexationists in the zeal of their self-justification had not been satisfied merely to assail the public acts of lilyokelani they had tried to smirch her private life as well and mr Stevens, in his dispatches to the state department repeating the scabrous gossip of the foreign clubs in honolulu had declared the queen to be unchaste hence the indignation with which liliokalani refused to promise any amnesty she would be queen without conditions or she would not be queen at all one may well admire her high spirit and her womanly indignation but her persistence made further effort on her behalf impossible mr willis sent his report to president cleveland who afterwards asked congress to take action congress however like the vast majority of the american people was most antagonistic to what the president had done in the hawaiian affair therefore it took no action at all and in due time the republic of hawaii had to be formally recognized by the united states mr cleveland's interference had not only failed to restore the queen but his withdrawal of the annexation treaty had deprived her and also the pretty young princess keulani of the liberal income which that instrument had guaranteed to them furthermore the president at the very outset of his administration had incurred a vast amount of odium just when he most needed the harmonious support of all who had ever been his friends already a serious crisis had arisen the condition of the treasury to which allusion has been made soon began to affect the prosperity of the country foreign investors were steadily selling american securities thus causing a general decline in prices this movement had begun during the latter part of the harrison administration but it was now perceptibly accelerated although the business of the country was fairly good although the crops were bountiful and the general industries not idle there existed nevertheless something like a vague premonition of disaster a pervasive distrust to which no name was given the most obvious reason for this feeling seemed to be a lurking doubt as to whether the government could continue to meet its obligations in paying gold upon the demand of all its notes forced as it was by the sherman law to purchase more than two tons of silver bullion every month most republicans insisted that the lack of confidence arose from a dread of the tariff changes to which the party now in power was pledged but whatever the cause commercial and financial activity languished the country exhibits all the symptoms of a patient suffering from low fever said a writer in the nation and this very well describes the situation up to the end of june After the twenty sixth of that month, however, this low fever assumed the form of a delirium. The Government of India on that day suspended the free coinage of silver at its mints. That such a measure was certain to be taken had been well known to students of finance, yet the announcement at once precipitated a panic, the like of which had not yet been seen in the United States. The value of the silver dollar, which had long been falling, dropped from sixty seven cents to less than sixty cents individuals all over the country began collecting gold and hoarding it having lost their confidence in government notes banks called in their loans and refused new discounts in this the lead was taken by those canadian banking houses which for the purpose of moving the crops were accustomed to lend money to american customers in the northwestern cities such as milwaukee detroit minneapolis and st paul business therefore came almost to a standstill and before long the weaker banks headed the long list of failures and suspensions which occupied whole columns in the daily press note twenty four page three thirty six a chain of shaky banks nearly fifty in number organized by one zimri dwiggins in the west came down in a single crash the gold reserve in the treasury for the first time fell below the traditional minimum and sank to less than ninety seven million dollars many prophesied that the country would soon be forced to a silver basis four days after the demonetization of silver in india president cleveland issued a proclamation note twenty five page three thirty six summoning an extra session of congress to meet on august seventh in the proclamation he spoke of the distressing condition of the country as largely the result of a financial policy which the executive branch of the government finds embodied in unwise laws laws which must be executed until repealed by congress this meant of course that the president intended to press for the repeal of the purchasing clause of the sherman act the proclamation had but slight effect in calming public anxiety it was known that the number of silver men in both houses of congress were a very large one and many persons doubted whether these would consent to the repeal of a measure so likely to bring about the very situation which they earnestly desired hence all through july the failure still continued mines were closed factories shut down and laborers were discharged on august first six days before congress met the savings banks put in force the clause which requires sixty days notice from depositors desiring to draw money the effect of this was to create what came to be known as a currency famine until then the general public had feared less gold should not be paid upon demand but now the belief spread rapidly that no money of any kind would long remain in circulation hence whereas men had previously hoarded gold there now began a frantic rush to hoard silver paper money in fact any kind of circulating medium of course this movement if not checked would have led to a panic so tremendous as to cause a universal crash and therefore in new york most of the banks that were members of the clearing-house resorted to a strong and quite unprecedented measure they declined as a rule to cash cheques drawn by their depositors except for very small amounts depositors were told that they had usually made their deposits in the form of cheques and that for the present therefore they must themselves employ the same medium of exchange in other words instead of drawing money they received certified cheques payable through the clearing-house if a depositor insisted upon receiving cash it was given him but he was informed that he must at once withdraw his account large employers of labor were provided with the money necessary for them in making up their payrolls, and in other cases where good reasons could be shown for drawing cash it was paid out but otherwise checks were not directly honored to sustain the weaker banks the clearing house issued loan certificates this plan was put into effect on august third and on the following day currency of every kind was at a premium ranging from one to two per cent The money brokers who had foreseen the action of the banks had for several days been quietly accumulating a stock of cash, and they now proceeded to cash certified checks at the discount mentioned. An enormous business of this sort was done. A well known brokerage firm near the head of Wall Street bought currency at a premium of one half of one per cent and sold it at a premium of three per cent. Great bundles of paper money were stacked up behind the counters, and all day long the exchange went on in no other way could checks be readily converted into money even those drawn by the assistant treasurer of the united states at the sub-treasury in new york in payment of pensions were not accepted at their face value on august eighth the premium on currency rose to three per cent while for the first time since january first eighteen seventy nine the banks themselves paid a premium for gold by august eleventh the currency famine was at its height and it was estimated that at least one million dollars in cash was paid out daily by the money brokers to holders of certified cheques the country was swept from one end to the other for coin and notes and even from canada there was sent to new york a consignment of nearly a million dollars in small bills and fractional silver oddly enough silver was now taken as readily as gold while paper money was preferred to either on august fifth a firm of money brokers advertised for silver dollars offering a premium of seven dollars and fifty cents per thousand note twenty six page three thirty nine many persons bought and hoarded bank of england notes or french and german gold the special session of congress opened on august seventh in the midst of these unusual occurrences for the first time since eighteen fifty three when pierce was president the democratic party was in control of the executive and legislative branches of the government presidency senate and house of representatives under president hayes both senate and house had been democratic for a short time during mr cleveland's first administration his party had the presidency and the house but now it was in complete possession and was therefore undividedly responsible in the house the democrats had two hundred nineteen members the republicans one hundred twenty four and the populists twelve note twenty seven page three thirty nine in the senate there were forty four democrats thirty six republicans five populists and three vacancies the weakness of the democrats lay in the slenderness of their majority in the senate and in the fact that on financial questions there existed a great divergence of opinion among them in both houses the president's message was sent to congress on august eighth it was a clear concise and convincing statement of what he held to be the cause of an alarming and extraordinary business situation this cause was according to him primarily the purchase provision of the sherman act of july fourteenth eighteen ninety between july eighteen ninety and july eighteen ninety three he said the gold coin and gold bullion in the treasury had decreased more than one hundred and thirty two million dollars while during the same period the silver coin and silver bullion had increased more than one hundred forty seven million dollars note twenty eight page three forty unless government bonds are to be constantly issued and sold to replenish our exhausted gold only to be again exhausted the operation of the silver purchase law now in force leads in the direction of the entire substitution of silver for the gold in the treasury and this must be followed by the payment of all government obligations in depreciated silver at this stage gold and silver must part company given over to the exclusive use of a currency greatly depreciated according to the standard of the commercial world we could no longer claim a place among the nations of the first class the president therefore recommended the repeal of the sherman act mr wilson of west virginia who soon came to be regarded as the administration's spokesman in the house introduced a bill carrying out this recommendation and the debate upon it began on august eleventh at once it became evident that the question was not to be decided by a purely party vote other lines of cleavage rapidly developed a large group of democratic representatives were opposed to repeal unless in place of the sherman act there should be substituted a still more radical measure intended to do something for silver a majority of the republicans stood with the president consistency in fact if nothing else would have made this necessary for mr wilson's repealing bill was almost identical in language with a like bill offered in the preceding congress by mr sherman himself note twenty nine page three forty one yet there were also a good many silver republicans and these combining with the silver men among the democrats and the entire body of populists made a formidable opposition this fact explains why the special session of congress and the president's message did nothing immediately to relieve the financial situation it was on the day when the debate began that the premium on currency reached its highest figure the debate was very interesting mr wilson's argument for repeal was weighty and represented the position of conservative expositors of finance mr reed of maine the republican leader spoke at some length and in a blandly philosophic tone he mentioned the existing business depression and seemed to give in his adhesion to the cyclic theory of panics great panics he remarked seemed to occur at long intervals but with a sort of cosmic regularity who shall say just why they come and then between there are minor panics curious interesting phenomena of the business world nothing could have been more beautifully detached than mr reed's whole tone and manner though as he neared the end he made it clear that to his mind the advent of the democratic party to power had in this particular instance mr grosvenor of ohio had no philosophic doubts in a burst of declamatory eloquence he charged the collapse of prosperity to a dread of democratic domination and the menace of free trade he drew a picture of the country after the election in november one by one the furnaces went out one by one the mines closed up one after another the factories shortened their time why did they do this was it a mere senseless stampede was it a wall street panic was it an unintelligent curtailment of the business of the country i say not where is there an intelligent man today if he were a manufacturer with the threat of the democratic party in power the menace of its possession the threat of its mere existence under that platform and confiding as human nature does in the belief that a great political party will do as it says a violent assumption i admit in the present instance what one of you at the head of an industrial institution would carry on your business the republican leaders however while casting the blame for the existing situation upon the president and his party gave their assent to the measure for repeal The Allied Silvermen were led by Mr. Richard P. Bland of Missouri, who had grown grey in the advocacy of a free or use of the white metal. He was the author of the Bland-Allison Act of 1878. Note 30, page 342. And his activity in behalf of Silver had never ceased, so that he had won for himself the popular nickname of Silver Dick. In the debate now in progress, he had answered Mr. Wilson on August 12th, his arguments were those with which all men were familiar and while they were listened to with respect they were neither new in substance nor especially forcible in the form of their presentation four days later august sixteenth the discussion was enlivened by the participation in it of a remarkable figure who now for the first time drew to himself the attention of men of every party throughout the united states it was mr william jennings bryan of nebraska mr bryan at this time was a young man of thirty-three the son of an eminent lawyer and judge whose profession he had followed in eighteen ninety he had accepted a democratic nomination for congress in a district where no other democrat was willing to stand the contest being considered hopeless without financial aid from the state committee of his party mr bryan had made a spirited canvass and had astounded everyone by converting a republican majority of three thousand into a democratic majority of seven thousand in eighteen ninety two he had been re-elected and he now appeared as the ablest of mr bland's lieutenants in opposing unconditional repeal the time allotted to each speaker had by agreement been limited to one hour but when mr Bryan's period expired he had so engaged the attention of the house that by unanimous consent his time was indefinitely extended and he continued speaking for nearly two hours longer to the admiration of all who heard him this admiration was no doubt partly due to mr bryant's command of the arts of the orator to his active presence his pleasing manner of delivery and his clear vibrant and beautifully modulated voice yet making all allowance for these adventitious aids the speech which he then delivered still remains perhaps the most forcefully persuasive exposition of the argument for silver that has ever been presented before a deliberative body its rhetoric never obtruded itself in the form of garish tropes or adjectival excess it was the subtler and more effective rhetoric which gives to undisputed facts the exact colouring that the artist in words desires to apply and which insensibly leads the listener to accept the facts and the deductions from those facts as of precisely equal value mr bryan's argument briefly summarized was to the effect that there existed neither gold enough nor silver enough for either to form the sole basis of the world's metallic money and that to discriminate against the use of either was to contract the currency everywhere to demonetize silver was to augment artificially the value of gold and thus to lower the price of all commodities when measured in gold while increasing the burden of the debtor class who must pay their debts in a kind of money more valuable and hence more difficult to earn than that in which the debt had been originally contracted he held that the united states should make a free use of silver and should allow free coinage of it at some ratio and he declared the ratio of sixteen to one to be a just one Retaining it, the parity of the gold and silver dollars could still be maintained. He quoted Lord Goshen's dictum. At present there is a vicious circle. States are afraid of employing silver on account of the depreciation. So the depreciation continues because states refuse to employ it. And he flung at the Republicans the following citation from a speech of Mr. Blaine. The destruction of silver as money and establishing gold as a sole unit of value must have a ruinous effect on all forms of property except those investments which yield a fixed return in money. These must be enormously enhanced in value and must gain a disproportionate and unfair advantage over every other species of property. Note 31, page 344. As against the proposal to repeal unconditionally the Sherman Act, Mr. Bryan said the main objection which we heard last spring was that the treasury sherman notes were used to draw gold out of the treasury but the objection is hardly important enough for consideration while the treasury notes have been used to draw out gold they need not have been used for this purpose for we have three hundred and forty six million dollars worth of greenbacks with which gold can be drawn so long as the government gives the option to the holder if all of the treasury notes were destroyed the greenbacks are sufficient to draw out the one hundred million dollar reserve three times over and then they can be reissued and used again to complain of the treasury notes while the greenbacks remain is like finding fault because the gate is open when the whole fence is down mr bryan's effort won him the sincere applause of party friends and foes alike but it could not prevail to defeat the administration's measure the power of a new president is very great and perhaps the power of a new speaker is even greater mr charles f crisp of georgia who had succeeded mr reed and now occupied the speaker's chair was or had been an advocate of free silver coinage but he frankly accepted the policy of the president and did all he could to press the repeal bill to a final vote this was taken on august twenty eighth when mr wilson's measure passed the house by a vote of two hundred thirty nine to one hundred eight here was apparently a triumph for the president yet the triumph was not unalloyed during the contest a proposal had been made to reenact the old bland allison law of eighteen seventy eight and this proposal had been lost by a vote in which the majority of democratic representatives had opposed the policy of mr cleveland so that he was sustained only by the aid of the republicans the repealing bill now went to the senate where it was introduced by mr Vores of indiana with an amendment which declared it to be the policy of the united states to use both gold and silver as standard money and to coin both gold and silver into money of equal intrinsic and exchangeable value such equality to be secured through international agreement The object of this amendment was to win the votes of those who, like Senator Lodge, were theoretical bimetallists, and also to make it clear that the use of silver was not to be discontinued. But in the Senate, the passage of the bill was stubbornly resisted, and both the populists and the silver advocates belonging to the older parties threatened to talk the bill to death. As the Senate rules provided for no restriction of debate, and as each senator might talk as often and as long as he desired, this threat was a most serious one prodigious feats of oratory were performed by the recalcitrant senators mr allen of nebraska made what was doubtless the longest speech in the history of legislative bodies in talking for fourteen hours without interruption resting himself by sending volumes of history or statistics or poetry to be read from the desk as part of his address other senators especially the republicans took a humorous view of the whole situation senator hale and senator chandler told fish stories and exchanged jokes other senators discoursed upon current topics having not the slightest relevance to the order of the day in fact the proceedings degenerated into an undignified and most discreditable farce on september twenty fifth several influential senators representing the administration went privately to vice-president Stevenson, who presided over the senate and urged him to break the deadlock by refusing to recognize those senators who should thereafter rise to speak for purposes of pure obstruction the debate might be brought to a close and a vote taken such a course would be contrary to all american precedents it would be almost revolutionary yet it was in accordance with the dictates of common sense that a minority should not be allowed permanently to prevent a majority from enacting legislation least of all in so serious a crisis and when every day's delay was so ruinous to the business of the country There was recent English precedent for such action as they asked. In the absence of a rule providing for a closure, the Speaker of the House of Commons, Mr. Arthur Peel, after an almost interminable period of obstruction on the part of the Irish members, had refused to entertain dilatory motions, and on his own responsibility had put the question to the House. Note 32, page 347. But Mr. Stevenson lacked the courage to carry out a coup like this he sat there day after day quite helpless in his chair often unable to preserve more than a mere semblance of order and decorum his were not the audacity and the dominant vigour of a reed it may be too that his secret sympathies were with the silvermen as his subsequent political career would seem to show at any rate he would not accept the suggestion made to him nor would he even promise to compel senators to speak to the question before them he would do nothing whatsoever and so the administration senators carried word to the president that the affair seemed hopeless but the president knew well enough that in the last resort he could force the repeal bill through the senate every president has influences at his command which if he be inclined to use them make it possible for him to impose his will upon a congressional majority of his own party and sometimes even upon a majority of the opposition when president johnson was at the very ebb of his popularity in eighteen sixty seven and when house and senate were overriding his vetoes and treating his recommendations with contempt he once said to a personal friend even now if i really wish anything very much indeed i can get it done mr cleveland was still new in office and the vast patronage at his disposal was still practically untouched he had rebuffed by his order of may eighth those senators who had importuned him on behalf of their constituents and friends now he had only to show himself a little more complacent, to listen a little more patiently, to say yes instead of no, and the thing would be done. It would be merely a reversion to the invariable practice of his predecessors from Lincoln, note thirty three, page three forty eight, down to Harrison. Yet, to one of Mr. Cleveland's temperament, and in view of the higher tone of public opinion, such a course could be justified only by the existence of a supreme emergency. Such an emergency was undeniably at hand. The government was threatened by the necessity of a partial repudiation of its debts, by the impairment of its credit, and by the loss of its financial honor. Yet still, the President held his hand. The majority at last tried to wear out the minority by a plan to prevent adjournment until a vote upon the bill should have been taken. One session lasted continuously for three whole days and nights. Note 34, page 348 during which time haggard and blear-eyed men talked and talked while others slept with their heads upon their desks. But this physical test proved as exhausting to one side as to the other, and the plan was given up. The Senate had now been considering the bill for two long months, and the end appeared no nearer than it had in August. Then, at last, the President very quietly made a move, so quietly that few perceived it but on october twenty ninth one of his supporters came to him to express discouragement there was really no chance at all of anything being done the silver men would never yield or let a vote be taken why mr president said he there is senator blank whom i have just seen and he says that this bill won't pass till hell freezes over the president looked up with just a half perceptible gleam of interest did senator blank say that he asked then please say to senator with my compliments that hell will freeze over in exactly twenty-four hours and on the following day the filibustering mysteriously ceased and the sherman act was repealed by a vote of forty-eight to thirty-seven but the measure so earnestly advocated by the president had been adopted by the help of republican votes note thirty five page three forty nine the house promptly concurred in the voray's amendment and the bill was signed and became law on november first mr cleveland had now been in office for only eight months and already his party was divided and unwilling to be led he had forced the passage of one measure of immense importance but in doing so he had made a host of enemies while he had depleted his available sources of influence both moral and material and the tariff fight was still to come End of chapter 7